Yeah, it's time for the beginning of the book of Romans, that is. We're starting back at the beginning, Romans chapter 1. The first half is this supposedly theological and theoretical section of the letter, chapters 1 through 8. But we are, we are committed to reading Romans as a pastoral letter, as, as revealing the heart of a pastor, not a, not a work of theology, not a seminary class. Okay? It is a letter written to house churches in Rome who were facing a lot of very specific issues of unity. They couldn't get along. They lived the tension. So when they heard this letter read to them, they could, they could read it and hear it through this lens which we don't normally feel until the last half of the book. So that's why we started at the end and now we're going back to the beginning because it's that end context which breathes life into the beginning portion of the book of Romans. So we're going to explore Romans 1 verses 1 through 17 this morning. And as we do, I think we'll discover the heart and soul of the church, of the Apostle Paul, and of the gospel. Got your sermon notes? If you're ready, number one, the heart and soul of the church at Rome. We've seen three elements. We're resetting the context, all right? Number one, we, we see the weak and the strong. We read Romans 1 through 11 and never think about the dynamic that's playing out on the chairs of, the, of those house churches. This weak and the strong, they, they're, they're, after reading the, the back of the book, I think we can understand what, more what's going on here. The weak, who are they? Well, they are Jewish believers who are in the stream of God's election. They know it. They were chosen of God, and they're in this stream. They need to be reassured of that election. God did choose them as a nation, but they have questions what about the faithfulness of God to his covenant with Israel? This whole church thing and Jesus, is it done with? They need to embrace that, that God is doing some surprising things in the history of, of humanity and the world. And this whole th church thing, it's not looking like anything they knew, nothing they grew up with. And, and so they, as the weak, they, they know the Torah. They practice the Torah. But they sit in judgment on the Gentiles who do not practice the Torah. And to make matters worse, they have no social standing, no power in Rome. This is a Gentile kingdom, and they're Jews. They, they have no power, no social status. They resist paying the taxes that Rome wants them to pay, take, pay as they move back into Rome because Jews can, you know, do what Jews want to do. That's this, this Jewish tradition of zealotry says, well, I'm just not going to do it. And so they need to learn to apply their faith in Christ to themselves. And as they do, I think they will discover that they are a new example of the remnant like Elijah. They need to see that salvation by faith alone, it means that, that the Gentiles and these believers who are Gentiles, they're brothers and sisters. They're siblings in Christ with them. And that following the Torah is not going to transform their lives to make them like Christ. So if it doesn't help them, then why are they forcing the Gentiles to do that? And then there's the strong, as you remember, predominantly Gentiles, not always. This isn't always an ethnic thing. 
But, but the strong believe in Jesus as the Messiah or the King, but they do not follow the Torah. No circumcision, you know, the food, the Sabbath, all of that stuff. They don't observe the Torah as the will of God for them. But they get a problem too. They're a little bit condescending. They're a little bit, you know, hateful. They probably don't like Jews at all, generally, but they're especially not really liking these Jewish believers. And, and wrapped into this is the, is the social dynamic that they are the powerful. They're Romans, probably Roman citizens. Paul is among the strong. And the Jewish believers who embrace that, that and well, we don't really need the Torah, they are among the strong. And the strong are known for their position on not observing the Torah, the first five books, they, really the whole Old Testament. And they've got higher status in Rome socially. See, it's not just ethnicity. It's not an ethnic issue. The weak and the strong. Phoebe, you remember her from chapter 16? We, we have to understand her in this context. She seems to be the reader of this letter. And so her female voice speaks for the Apostle Paul. When they hear her voice, it's the Apostle Paul speaking. How long does it take her to read the letter? I don't know. Someone should read it out loud someday and let me know. <laughs> probably took them all week. She probably had to go to this one house church for a week. And maybe in the day they copied the scribes so that they could have a copy of it at the house church. And so we don't know how long it did, but she's the voice of Paul in the churches in Rome. Third element to reveal the heart and soul of the churches is Paul's strongest theme, and that is that we need to live our theology. We have to live what we believe. It was a little subtle in 9 through 11. It's very strong in 12 through 16. But our orientation in life must be body of Christ-centered, us, siblings, together. The fundamental core of Christianity is because you're in Christ, you're not supposed to act according to the power and the privilege that you have in society. Your status with God and your election, if you're either Jewish or not, that's not the most important thing. Instead, you're to love your neighbor and you're to give your body as an offering every day. Because you're in Christ, you're supposed to live as siblings with each other. And you're to welcome each other. You're to eat at the table together, remember? And because you're in Christ, you are to love your Roman neighbor as yourself. You're supposed to be civil. You're supposed to intentionally do kind things, whether they're believers or not. You want to live in peace. Paul says the only way peace is going to be found in Rome, and especially in these house churches, is if we decide we're going to live our theology. We're going to live what we believe. And that is why Romans 1 through 8 says what Romans 1 through 8 is going to say. Because unless and until we understand Romans 1 through 8 to speak of peace in the body of Christ, I think we'll miss the point. So let's get started at the very beginning. Number two in our sermon notes is the heart and soul of Paul. As we turn to consider the first few verses of this book, we immediately encounter something very unusual. But let me just read it. 
Romans 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and through and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You might not have noticed what was unusual. It's all one sentence in the original. 176 words full of it. One sentence. Usually you start a book in that day with Julius to Augustus greetings and then get into it. But not here. Paul departed from the norm. Why? Because he's never been to Rome. Most of the people in these house churches had never met him. Some of them had, but most of them had not, and he'd never been there before. He didn't know them personally. He didn't know. They didn't know what he believed. They didn't know what, what he wanted. Why are you writing to us? And I think there's, there's several things we can learn. First is about Paul the man. In verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. There is an autobiography that you all know very well, I think, but there's more here than meets the eye. Because here's a man who's been justified by faith, and you know the story. He was an extremely zealous Jew. He killed Christians. I mean, he killed them, and he looked to go kill them. He was bent on persecuting the church. He was responsible for the imprisonment and the death of a lot of believers. But he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he kind of you know, the blinding light, he got blind, and, and the whole story. And God commanded this Jewish zealot to become his instrument to the preach the gospel to the Gentiles throughout Europe, whom he hated. And he takes the gospel to Europe, which is kind of why we're all believers. That's the man. Verse 2 through 4, we see Paul and his mandate. What, what was his mandate? Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the phrase, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul's mandate was to preach the gospel. And that gospel was promised in the Old Testament. Abraham looked forward to it. Moses looked forward to it. David looked forward to it. As did Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel and Daniel. They all looked forward to it. What does that mean to us? It means that the gospel is good news, but it is not new news. In many ways, the gospel is old news because the prophets predicted the Messiah would someday come and save his people. So the gospel, this whole church thing that's going on, is not a sudden maneuver. 
This isn't some novelty dreamed up at the last second by God himself. No, this is all part of the plan of God. This is where it's been heading. Remember the story of, of Jesus meeting those two disciples on Resurrection Sunday as they were headed home down on that road to Emmaus. These two men were so upset, they didn't recognize it was Jesus. They'd heard rumors about a resurrection, but you know, they're not so sure. And Jesus rebukes them, Acts 20, um, Luke 24, verse 25. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Then Luke says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There's a Bible seminar you wouldn't want to have missed. <laughs> Two people and Jesus. Paul's mandate was to preach the gospel, a gospel that was old news, but, man, new to, new to them. Paul in his mission, verses 5 and 6, he introduces his mission. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 5, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Gentiles, Gentiles, ethnos. It's the word from which we get our English word ethnic. It literally means the nations. I'm the apostle to the nations. In modern lingo, Paul is a Jew who has been ordained to, to preach the gospel to non-Jews. He is the very first foreign missionary. And his mission field was the nations of the world. Then we get to Paul in his heart. And here, listen. Can you hear the echoes of the back of Romans right here up front? Verse 5, to call all the Gentiles to what? To the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Obedience that comes from faith. Not obedience that comes from following the Torah. Obedience that comes from faith. That is a lived theology. That's what he's preaching. It's not an obedience rooted in obeying the Torah, but an obedience that comes from faith. And then in verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes a very personal and intimate statement about his own deep interest in these Roman believers. He's never been there. Usually, what's Paul's pattern? He visits a church he teaches for a while, he leaves it, and then, you know, he hears some stuff, and then he writes back to them. That's not what Paul is doing here. Paul here, he's never been to Rome, so he felt this obligation to introduce himself to the Roman believers. How else would they know about him? How else are you going to trust this guy? How do you convince people you really care about them if you've never met them face to face? So he writes about this, his deep feelings to these Roman believers. He's trying to win their confidence to let them know how much he really does care about them. And so before he jumps into the heart of the letter, he writes a few lines to share his, his personal concern for the church at Rome. And when we do, when he, when he does that, we learn not only about his heart, but we also learn for us the secret 
of a ministry that's heart to heart. You want a ministry that impacts? This is how you do it. And he reveals, I think, three clues about his heart. He says he has a great, this text says he has a grateful heart. He begins with a compliment, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith has been reported all over the world. Well, that's pretty cool. That's a nice way to begin. Don't you know the Romans felt encouraged when, when Paul said, you know, other people have heard about your faith. Now, not everybody in the world, obviously. That's not what he means. He means everywhere he goes, you know, people I've talked to in the church, they've heard about you. It's much easier to criticize, much easier. Let's just dive into this weak and strong stuff. That's not what he does. We live in a fallen, imperfect world. You can always find something to criticize somebody else about. We know people like that, but that isn't Paul. He begins by expressing grateful gratitude and thanksgiving for these people in the church of Rome. And when he says your faith has been reported all over the world, he means everywhere I go, they're talking about you fantastic believers in Rome. Well, I want to hear what he has to say if I'm living in Rome at that point. He's got a grateful heart. Second, he's got a praying heart. Verse 9, God whom I serve in my spirit is preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. This God is my witness, okay? I'm calling God to witness that this is true. How I constantly remember you in my prayer at all times. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He prayed for the Roman believers. He's praying for these house churches. And it's more amazing that he calls on God as his witness to that. So you know it's true. He's not just you know, saying he was praying for them like we sometimes do and don't. He prays for them constantly. How do you suppose that made them feel? I think it made them feel very honored to know that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was praying for them. I only got one personal reaction to that point, to that. For many years, the people in the church, the ladies in the church in which I grew up, they prayed for me. They told me they did. They're no longer around. So when somebody comes and says, I'm praying for you, it's amazing. It's a wonderful feeling. Because prayer can span the miles that separate us. Prayer can overcome the misunderstanding that can come between us. Prayer can leap across the bad memories that pull us apart. There can be bitterness. There can be anger. There can be years of alienation. But if you pray for one another, it bridges the gap. Your heart can touch their heart. Just pray for them. Third, Paul has a longing heart. Notice what he says in verse 11, I long to see you. I think the original is a little stronger because you could translate this, I'm, I'm homesick to see you. I'm homesick to see you. You've never been there. How could you be homesick for a place you've never visited? Well, because he prayed for them so much and thought about them so much, he felt as if he already knew them. And then he opens his heart even more. I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I don't want to come, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now. 
in order why that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Now, verse 11, it makes perfect sense. He wants to come. He wants to minister to them. And he wants to use his spiritual gifts to build up these house churches. But that's not all he says. He says in verse 12, he, you know, he kind of corrects verse 11. It says if he's thinking to himself as he writes, oh, yeah, that's true. I want to do that. But also, I really want to be mutually encouraged. That's how ministry works. It adds a whole dimension of their relationship. How do you think that made them feel? I want to come to you so you can encourage me too. The great apostle, I'm looking forward to seeing you, not just so that I can give you something, but so that you can minister to me. That's the ministry of mutual encouragement. It's what happens when I minister to you and you minister to me. It's the heart of what true biblical ministry is all about. It's mutual. You give something, I give something. It's a two-way street. So how about a simple challenge at this point for the week ahead? Could you do something that would touch three different hearts this week? That's it. Just do something that can touch a heart. Who needs your touch? This is the part where you write down their names in your sermon notes. Maybe could somebody needs a, a word of encouragement. Maybe somebody just needs you to pray for them. Maybe you need to go out of your way to see somebody. Because real ministry begins when? When your heart touches their heart. And nobody's gonna, no one cares how much you know until you, you know how much you care. Who can we touch this week for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of ministry together? So Paul begins this letter. He opens his heart to the church. He lets them get a glimpse of, of his heartbeat. He can't wait to get there. We know from the rest of the New Testament it takes at least two more years before he can get there. And when he gets there, he's a guest of the state of Rome. <laughs> he's in jail. But he reveals his heart, and if you read between the lines, I think he reveals something else as he begins. I think he reveals kind of a clue of what this, what this letter is really all about. And you don't have to look far to find it. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Look in verse 2, the gospel which he promised beforehand. Drop down to verse 9, the gospel of his son. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Verse 16, for, you know this one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness of God is revealed. What's a key theme of this book? Well, it's the gospel. What's Paul writing about? The gospel. As the book opens, we are introduced to the heart and the soul of the gospel. Now, the word gospel is a very popular Christian word to use today. Listen to me carefully. I think it is very peculiar that if you ask people to define the gospel today, you would, people would use a definition that would be unrecognizable in the first century by Jesus or the apostles. 
Now, when I say that, it sounds a bit controversial. But let me defend what I say, and, and let's look at what the Bible teaches. If you ask someone, what does the word gospel mean? They will probably say something like this. That God loves me, that he has a wonderful plan for my life, that we're sinners by birth, and we need to awaken to our sinfulness. Sometimes we can awake to our sinfulness by, by talking about law and the, the righteousness of God so that eventually we get to the place where we realize that we're a sinner. Well, Jesus died for our sins and he came to earth. That's why he came to earth, to die for our sins, that we might be forgiven. And if we accept that by faith, by trusting him, by receiving him into our heart, then we will be saved, we'll be justified. And when we die, we're going to go to heaven. Common understanding of what we mean by the word gospel. And I don't think any of those statements are not true. They're all true. And they're all statements that you can find in the Bible. Yet that is not how the New Testament defines gospel. Why do we call it the gospel when we have a very different definition in the New Testament? So I thought, well, let's just read how the New Testament defines gospel. These are straight from the Apostle Paul, who I think he knows what he's talking about. He defines the gospel. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So he's about to define the gospel for us, and he does it in beginning in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. There are four points to the gospel. Jesus died, and he was buried. Jesus was raised, and then he appeared to all these people. He died and was buried. The burial proves that he died, that he was resurrected, and the proof of that is that he saw these people. Fast forward to late in the life of Paul. In the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. The earliest Christian gospel is to tell the story of Jesus. It was to tell the story of how Jesus lived. It was to tell the story of how he died at the hands of, of, of sinners in an unjust manner. But then he overturned to death. He was raised to life. He ascended. He's coming back. The gospel, first and foremost, is the story of Jesus. It wasn't to tell the story about how we get saved. Although the story of Jesus 
does tell you how to get saved. It is the story about Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the central gospel affirmation of the New Testament. So when the apostles and Peter and Paul, they preach, did they all preach the same message? Well, in Acts 2, Peter told people what was happening on the day of Pentecost by what? By telling the story of Jesus. Acts 2, verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep, him, to keep its hold on him. Acts 10, Peter's up with Cornelius along the Mediterranean Sea. They meet together. Paul preaches the gospel to him. He tells him the story of Jesus. And as he does, the Spirit comes. They believe. They're filled with the Spirit. They speak in tongues. They get baptized. Paul and Peter, they're preaching the same gospel, the same message. And yet, how do we share the gospel these days? God loves you. God's got a great plan in your life. What, what, heaven, hell, what, what's, what's in it for you? To be thoroughly biblical, the message we really need to focus on, first and foremost, is what? We need to tell people what God has done in Jesus Christ. We need to focus on the story of Jesus himself. We don't need to focus, first and foremost, on how we can be happy when we die or what's going to happen to us when we die. To tell the gospel is to tell the story of Jesus. And guess what? When we tell the story of Jesus, it is a redeeming story. It does take care of our sin. It does shoulder the burden of our guilt. It does remove our sins. We are justified. We are sanctified. We are filled with the Spirit. That's what the story will do for us. But it's not a story about us. It's a story about Jesus. And that's the story we have been called to tell. So let me say this, whenever we have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus and his story, that is evangelism. Whenever we have the opportunity to bring Jesus up in a conversation and into our personal lives, that's what evangelism is all about. It is to recognize that Jesus Christ is the center of the story of God, and we're called to look to him, to be saved by him, and therefore, we live under him. And he will send the Spirit into our lives so that we can live in the fullness of his grace. The gospel, first and foremost, isn't how to be saved. The gospel is the story of Jesus. The first four gospels, they're called gospels. Why? <laughs> because they tell us the story of Jesus. And as we tell the story of Jesus, we will be telling people about someone who saves them, who redeems them, who gives them the opportunity for a life transformed. That's the nature of the gospel. This morning as the book opens, we've seen the heart and soul of the church in Rome, the context of this letter. We've seen the heart and soul of the Apostle Paul. We've seen the heart and the soul of the gospel 
It is the story of Jesus. But we better not ignore these last two verses, right? And we're going to do them quickly. But as I read them, think about the context. You're living in Rome. You know all that stuff from Phoebe. You know the weak and the strong. You know the, the lived theology that you're having struggles with. Listen in that context to these two verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I, okay. It is the, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk. The gospel saves. The story of Jesus unleashes the greatest deliverance from sin we've ever known. Faith engages that redemption. The gospel saves Jews and Greeks. The gospel it's not your social status. It's not whether you're powerful or you're weak, not what your ethnicity. It doesn't matter. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It's about Jesus. And Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. So it's through faith from beginning to end. And he reaches clear back into Habakkuk to, to make the point. The righteous will live by faith. This is good news. It's not new. Habakkuk said it. But it's wonderfully good news. The just shall live by faith. That's the message we preach. That's the text that changes the world. The best way to respond, start telling the story of Jesus. Open your heart to someone this week. And begin to incorporate that story in your thoughts. Because oftentimes we need to preach that gospel to us. We forget. Perhaps that's why we do communion so often. That's, maybe that's why Jesus told us to, to do and partake of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you know the story. That is all about the story. So you know it. You don't need a class. Just talk about Jesus. We will not and cannot forget the biblical gospel of the New Testament because it's all about the Savior. It's a story we tell ourselves daily. It's a story we share with others whenever possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for, for, for these house churches We've never been there, but you know, in a, in a sense, we're kind of homesick. We'd like to have met those people. But we struggle today with weak and strong as well. We struggle today with, with unity, with, with all kinds of things as your church. I pray that we would understand the nature of the biblical New Testament gospel, that it is the story of Jesus. That we would... have a renewed love to tell that story. That we would, as we fall and fail, realize it is that story that forgives us from sin, that keeps us dependent day by day. Revolutionize us and let us revolutionize our community with the wonderful story 
of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.